Good morning, everyone. Right, well, my name's Nick, and um, I'm one of the elders here, and uh, we're going to be starting today um, our series in Psalms. And uh, we've got about eight weeks or so looking at the book of Psalms. Now, Psalms, for those who, who don't know, is the central book of the Bible. It's got the middle chapter, it's got the middle verse, it's got the longest chapter, it's got the shortest chapter, and uh, Psalms is quoted around 75 times by uh, the writers of the New Testament. The Psalms is a collection of praises, of prayers, of teaching, of wisdom. It was written by various authors, by King David, by Asaph, by a group of men, and this is an interesting one, called the Sons of Korah. Now, they're not a biblical boy band, okay? They were a group of people who wrote uh, psalms and praises for the temple by Ethan, and by even some people think Psalm 90 was written by Moses. They came together over a long period of time, over around 1,000 years, between, anywhere between 1,400 BC to um, 500 BC. Now, the 4th century writer, a man called Athanasius, said that this book is unique because while the rest of the Bible speaks to us, Psalms speaks for us. Psalms helps us and teaches us how to relate to God as friends. And Psalms directs us to sing to God. Nothing can substitute building a relationship with God through praise and worship and singing our heart of love to, of, to God, as we've done this morning, because God deserves it, because it is the nature of Christians to worship God. We have been rescued, our eyes have been opened, our life now has meaning, and this leads us to bring worship to God, also because our eternal destiny depends upon worship. Worship is one of the physical expressions of us putting our faith in God. And Psalms helps us to do this. The Psalms are not just for the good times, they're for the bad times as well. They teach us how to relate to God in hard times, in dark times, in confusing times. Phil Moore, the writer and theologian, says this. He says that the Psalms teach us to sing the blues as well as happy songs. The psalmists teach us to be real with God. And often when you read some of the psalms, you think, my word, I can't believe that the writer, this is in the Bible, I can't believe that someone said this to God. Well, as one commentator says, God is actually less shockable than us. Or more accurately, God is shocked or moved by different things than us. Because God looks at our hearts. And we can be, therefore, we can be honest with God. The Old Testament and the New Testament, they don't sit separately, they sit together. And they tell us about the story of God, the story of man's fall from relationship with God, the story of God's grace, and how he sent Jesus, his son, to rescue us from our sin. And so many of the Psalms actually prophesy to this rescue mission. They prophesy to Jesus. And we're going to be looking a bit about that today. So in this series, we're going to be covering loads of themes. We're going to be covering the Word of God, prayer, praise, God's love of diversity, God's heart for the poor, how we can live our lives in victory, 
and what is the purpose of our lives. And we're going to be hearing from um, some of our family members. We're going to be hearing from people from our congregation, uh, our church, who are, are going to tell us a bit about their favorite psalm and about how that psalm has helped them, changed them, strengthened them through whatever they've been through. And we hope that by the end of this series, um, we will all understand and know God a bit better and that we'll be stirred to worship God more and that our love for Jesus will increase and that we will be stirred to live lives of victory and purpose in Jesus. So we're going to watch the first video. And uh, if you'd like to play it, Chrissy, and then we're, we're going to go on from there. I like a plan. I like to know where I'm going, what I'm doing, what direction we're taking, how many stops we're going to have on the way, and most importantly, what we're going to eat. Um, and I can often do that with God too. If I feel a nudging to do something, I can be saying to him, what's the outcome? How long is it going to take? What do I have to do? Instead of just taking the first step in obedience, I can often struggle. And Psalm 1 helps me. Let me read a bit of it to you. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields fruit in its season, whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does, prospers. And that just helps me to be bolder than I would be naturally. Does it mean that if I take tennis lessons, I'll become the number one seed and lift the cup at Wimbledon? Probably not at my age, but it does mean that it'll be fruitful and it does mean that God will use it and nothing will be wasted. If I stay rooted in him, reading his word, try my best to follow his commands and his guidance, I won't be like the chaff that it says later that it's just blown away. But rooted in him, I won't be easily swayed. I hope that helps you be a bit bolder. Great. Thank you, Emma. I don't know if Emma's in the room, but let's give Emma a round of applause for that. That's great. Really, really helpful. And we're going to be... Um, we're going to be hearing, as I say, from different members of the church over the next few weeks about their reflections on various psalms. But today, we're going to be looking at two psalms, Psalms 22 and Psalms 23. So if you'd like to turn in your Bibles to those psalms, as I've already given you a clue where they are, they're in the middle of the Bible, okay? And uh, we're going to be looking at those. Now, Psalm 22 and Psalm 23 were written by a man who I've already mentioned, a man called King David. And he was probably one of the greatest kings of Israel. He ruled Israel um, around 1,000 BC, so 3,000 odd years ago. Now, David started out life as a shepherd, uh, but he became a great warrior and a great king. And uh, he was also a very talented musician, a poet, and he wrote many of the Psalms. And uh, it's, it's, no, it's no coincidence that Psalms 22 and Psalms 23 are together. I don't believe it is. It's not just a number thing here we're looking at today. 
Because these two psalms go hand in hand, and we're going to unpick that a bit today. In order to understand 23, you need to understand 22 and vice versa. So we're going to be looking at a bit about that today. So let's start by reading Psalm 22. Now, I'm not going to read the whole psalm. I'm going to read some extracts from it, but the whole psalm is going to come up on the screen as I, as I go through it. Okay, so here we go. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. But I'm a worm. I'm not a man. I'm scorned by mankind and despised by the people. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. They have pierced my hands and feet. I count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. And all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. So no one knows what was going on in David's life when he wrote this psalm. Now, it could have been one of the big events that happened in his life. If you read the account of David's life in Samuel, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, he had many big things happened. Or it could have been the everyday struggles that you know, many of us go through. But it was clear, wasn't it, if you, if you read that, that David was going through some anguish. And he starts in verses 1 and 2. God, where are you? Where are you, God? Why don't you answer me? I can't sleep. And we heard that this morning, didn't we, from Kate. I can't sleep, God. Where are you? Has anyone else had that experience before? Has anyone ever said these things to God before? I know I have. But what we see here are normal, raw human emotions, aren't they? These are the normal struggles of faith. And as followers of Jesus, Jesus promised us that he would send us his spirit, the comforter. And when he left, when he ascended, he said, I'm going to send my spirit to you who will encourage you, who will strengthen you, who will teach you, who will support you. And Jesus was clear that we are not alone. But Jesus also said that in life we will have trouble sometimes. 
And the, the writers of the New Testament were absolutely clear that as Christians, there will be struggles, there will be temptations, there will be emotional highs, there will be emotional lows. And as a result, they continually exhort us. They continually encourage us to stand firm, to resist, to hold fast, to run the race, to press on, to renew our minds. But how do we do that? How do we do that? And we've seen a bit in worship. We've seen how Julie and Kate were able to stand on the word of God. But how do we do this? How do we stand firm in the midst of ups and downs and struggles and trials and turmoil? Well, Psalm 22, we get a glimpse of how a godly man, a man who was after God's heart, walked his way through a difficult time, through negative thoughts, through difficult feelings, through difficult emotions. And in verses 3 to 5, we see that David took the attention of his, himself and looked to God. David focused on God's glory and fame. He says, you are holy, God. You are enthroned. You're in charge. People that I look up to, they worship you and you have rescued them. They were not put to shame. So therefore, I am going to do the same. I am going to, I am going to focus on you, on your glory and on your fame. In, but then we see the struggle coming back again in verses 6 to 8 of Psalm 22. And this is, isn't this how it is sometimes in our Christian walk, in our Christian lives? We see the struggles raise their ugly head. And maybe we get a glimpse of what David was actually going through. In verses 6 to 8, people despise me, he says. People, they mock me for my faith. They mock me because I trust in you. But David doesn't dwell on that. David then fights the negative thoughts, fights those negative feelings. And in verses 9 to 11, we see that David then starts to put his attention and focus onto the personal, lifelong care that God has for him. He says, from my mother's womb, you have been my God. You have looked after me. God, I know that you are faithful. But then the issues and the struggles, they fight back again, don't they? In verses 12 to 18, David describes the injustice and the oppression that he sees, that he feels, that he sees around him, the mob rule on earth, that kind of glory and evil, that glory and going their own way against God's word. Sometimes that's our experience, isn't it? And you think, God, this nation needs you. People are glorying in going the opposite way to you. It makes David feel weak. It, he uses descriptive language like, my heart is like wax, it's melting. My strength is dried up. Has anyone felt that as well? I know I have sometimes when I read the news, when I see what's going on in our nation. But David doesn't give in. In verses 19 to 22, what does David do? He urgently cries out to God. God, do not be far off. God, come quickly to my aid. God, deliver me. God, save me. And this is why prayer is so important to us as a church. This is why we're meeting next Friday. Because we see a need and we are crying out to God. God, save us. Come quickly. Hear us, God. And then in verses 22 to 26 of Psalm 22, David declares the goodness of God to others. He takes the focus off himself and he looks to others and he says, I'm going to tell of your name, God, to my brothers. 
I'm going to worship you in the midst of the congregation. I'm going, to, I'm going to stand in awe of God. Is everyone else coming with me? And there is power and there is victory as we take our eyes off what's wrong and declare God to others in our words and our actions. Now, I just want to pause there for a second because as I was preparing this, I felt God kind of speak to me about this whole area of self-pity. And uh, self-pity can happen when we decide that life has not treated us as we have the right to be treated. Self-pity can cause us to sulk and obsess over hurts. Maybe they are real hurts, or maybe they are perceived hurts. But at the heart of self-pity is a disagreement between us and God about how our life has turned out, or about how he has treated us. And I just want to say, beware. Beware, friends. I'm saying this to myself as well, because self-pity is a poison. Self-pity is a poison that erodes our relationship with God. It erodes our relationship with others, others, and it stops us from walking into the freedom and God's purposes for our lives. It makes us bitter. It makes us angry. It makes us jealous. It can make us unrealistic. It can make us demanding to others. And here, David could have easily gone into self-pity. But instead, he fights it. He says, no, I'm not having that. And he looks away from himself, and he looks to God with a thankful, with a grateful, and with a trusting heart. And from verse 26 onwards in Psalm 22, we see as if a light has been switched on. And victory and peace and light, they come into David's mind and spirit. And you can see David walking into the freedom as he proclaims these things. This isn't kind of mind over matter. This isn't pretending that nothing's wrong and whistling happily. This is a practical demonstration of how we can stand on truth and live in the victory that God brings to our lives even in the midst of hard times. David shows us practically how we can stand firm, how we can hold fast, how we can press on, how we can renew our minds. And he shows us by focusing on God's holiness, on God's power, on who he is. It humbles us. It shakes us out of anxiety. And we heard that in the worship this morning. He shows us by focusing on God's deep, deep care for us that we, are, we, can, we have life. We are his chosen sons and daughters. We can find freedom. He shows us by focusing on our need for God to break through. We take our eyes off ourselves and we cry out to God. He shows us by focusing on others around us. He says, you know, focus on those around you. Encourage others to come to worship God. Take the focus off yourselves. Now, I was so encouraged in the worship time to hear some of these testimonies. And they were very similar to a story that I wanted to bring about myself. A few weeks ago, I was um, watching TV and I was flicking through the channels, always a dangerous thing to do. And I came upon this program that was about fraud and scams. Okay. And I don't know if I was tired. I don't know if I was just a bit worn out or whatever. But I watched it. And I got filled with fear and anxiety and worry. And I found myself just obsessing about it for a bit and becoming 
almost kind of, you know, kind of out, out of, you know, kind of sillily, um, silly, obsessive about this and thinking, we're in danger. We're, our family's in danger. My kids are in danger. And it exposed in me wrong motives about my earthly security, about money, about possessions. And in those, I was literally in turmoil for about 24 hours. And I had a sleepless night over it, thinking, are we secure? Have we done enough? What are we going to do? And I had to take practical steps. But in the end, I had to pray. I had to read the promises of God in the Bible. I had to jump on the fear and anxiety when it appeared. And I had to do what David did. He focused on God. He focused on his power. He focused on God's deep, deep care for us. And I had a breakthrough moment when I read Psalm 91, where it says that God will protect us from the fowler's snare. And I thought, you know what? God has got our backs. God will protect us. We've got to be sensible, but God will protect us. And in any case, even if we lose everything, God will provide for us. And I found freedom. Tim Keller writes this. He says that Jesus was so saturated with the word of God that it spontaneously came to his mind, enabling him to interpret and face every challenge. There are modern imitations of what Jesus had. There's relaxation techniques. There's stress management. There's positive thinking. There's mystical forms of contemplation. But nothing can duplicate the word of God. God's word was what sustained Jesus when he lived and when he died except no substitutes. If God's word was what sustained Jesus, we, how much more do we need that? And I just want to ask you this morning, as, as we've been hearing through worship and as I've just been talking about what David um, taught, is, is teaching us through Psalm 22, are there people here who are struggling this morning? Is your heart in turmoil over something? Are you worried? Are you fearful? Are you anxious? Is there something that you need to deal with before God this morning? I'm going to leave that with you. Because there is something else going on here in Psalm 22. In Psalm 22, for the eagle eyes among you, you may have also noticed that there is a glimpse of a greater story happening. The story of God's love for us as humans. The story of Jesus' rescue mission to save us from our sin. In Psalm 22, David is, is not only talking about how he found victory through anguish, he's also prophesying about Jesus. A prophecy in actually minute detail about the culmination and the pivotal moment in Jesus' rescue mission, his death and his resurrection and his final victory over sin and death on the cross. And we see David writes in verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These were the exact words that Jesus quoted on the cross as Jesus took the world, the world's sin, on his shoulders. And as Jesus felt the full wrath of God's holiness and anger towards him on the cross, he did this for you. And these were the words that Jesus chose. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
David's prophesied, prophesied the mocking that Jesus experienced. He trusts he trust in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. Almost the exact taunts, aren't they, that Jesus experienced, that were thrown at him. Ah, oh, he saved others. Let him save himself. David prophesies the details of Jesus' crucifixion, the crowds enjoying the spectacle, the, the thirst that Jesus felt, the piercing of Jesus' hands and feet, the dividing of Jesus' garments. David writes, For God has not despised or abhorred the afflicted one. He, he's prophesying that God will not despise Jesus' sacrifice, but God accepted Jesus' sacrifice. David prophesies the results of Jesus' victory on the cross. He says at the end, all of the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All families of nations shall worship before you. All the prosperous and all the poor, whoever you are, will bow down one day before Jesus. The good news will be told to every generation. And what we see here this morning is the prophecy coming true. David prophesies, he has done it. What were Jesus' final words? It is finished. He's done what? He's finished what? Well, Jesus defeated sin. Jesus defeated death. He made a way for us to know God. And we've been hearing about that all through the worship. And I just want to say, if there is anyone in this room who knows that they need to, they're searching and they need to come to God this morning, God is here for you. God will come to God. Don't, don't, don't deny it. Don't walk away from this room without turning to Jesus this morning. If you put your faith in Jesus, you can become part of God's family, his own, his loved, his cherished. Jesus called himself the good shepherd, and we can come under, you can come under, the good shepherd's care. And this is what we see described in Psalm 23. And this is why Psalm 22 and Psalm 23 go hand in hand, because we can see the shepherd's care in Psalm 23, but we can only truly understand the shepherd's care. We can only truly walk into the shepherd's care when we understand what Jesus has done as prophesied in Psalm 22. So let's read Psalm 23 together. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside stilled waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What is described here is the beautiful, unbreakable covenant relationship between the good shepherd, Jesus, and his sheep, the church. It's beautiful. And we're going to just quickly look at some of this this morning. And I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, in order to do this, I'm going to refer back to a time. A few years ago, I spent um, some time with Sheila. 
who is a member of our church, and she is also a shepherdess, okay? And uh, it was really, really helpful. It was really great to spend time with her. It was a real privilege, and uh, it's really helped me to understand some of the meaning and some of the significance of Psalm 23. Now, one of the first lessons that Sheila taught me was that sheep can't look after themselves. Now, a shepherd lives with its flock and is everything to it. It's its guide, it's its doctor, it's its protector, it's its dresser. Sheep can't take their own fleece off, okay? God intended and created us to trust and rely on him. And he doesn't control us, but he sets clear boundaries for our good. And he gives us the freedom to live within those boundaries. But mankind, of course, has decided to go his own way, hasn't he? And has rejected God's ways, which is why the world is in such a confused and fractious mess. But as we come to Jesus in humility, trust and faith, we hand our care over to him. And he promises, you shall not be in want. I'm not talking about riches and wealth, but as we trust Jesus for every aspect of our lives, as we take steps of faith and obey his ways, he promises that he will look after us. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and everything you need will be added to you. Paul writes, God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ. As the old saying goes, God's work done in God's way never lacks his resources. Sheila also taught me that a shepherd's, um, shepherd's job is to ensure that a sheep gets a good bite. Okay, now I remember thinking, well, what's a good bite? What, is, what does she mean by that? It literally means a good bite. It means good grass. It means fresh grass with no poisonous plants around. A shepherd is always looking to cultivate good pastures, field rotation, not burning the grass, you know, the yellow grass that you find, understanding different types of grass, growing conditions, always thinking ahead, always thinking ahead with their flock's welfare in mind. Jesus causes us to lie down beside still waters. Whatever circumstance we find ourselves in, God is thinking ahead. He's looking out for good bites for us. He's interested in us. He's interested in our welfare. He's interested in our growth. He knows our thoughts, our words, before we think or say them. He hems us in. He makes our path straight. He knows what we need before we even ask. He restores our souls. When we're troubled, he brings peace. When we've sinned, when we've sinned he forgives us. When we feel condemned, he covers us with his righteousness. He leads us into paths of righteousness and goodness. As the prophet Ezekiel prophesied, God puts his spirit in us and causes us to walk in his ways. We're forgiven. We're made clean. We're made righteous in God's sight. And then Jesus commits to making us more like him and preparing us for heaven. God is looking out for us. God is giving us and leading us to good bite. Sheila once told me it can be lonely and dark and cold in the fields. And David would have known that. There's stories of David as a shepherd fighting off bears and lions. He would have known what it was like to be lonely and cold and dark alone in a field. And David writes, well, even though I walk through 
the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Maybe David was thinking about those times as he wrote that. Or maybe David was thinking about the time when he alone, because no one else would do it, had to walk up to Goliath with a sling and a stone in one hand, thinking to himself, I really am walking into the valley of the shadow of death now. Thinking if God doesn't come through in this moment, I'm just about to die. As we follow Jesus, he never promises, does he, that all will be easy. But that he never promises that we'll never have troubles again. In fact, as we've already seen this morning, the opposite is true. We're still affected by this sinful, fallen world. But as one commentator on Psalm 23 wrote, peace is not an escape from the world's realities. Contentment is not complacency. Sometimes, you know, we have to face, don't we, the decisions, the tough decisions. Sometimes we have to face the responsibilities that are laid before us. But, and sometimes some of the trials that come our way are actually God's right path for us. But through our trials, through these moments, Jesus Jesus promises that he will never, never leave us. He is with us. He's no longer ahead. He's alongside us, beside us, escorting us. And his presence in those moments takes out the sting, doesn't it? Because we know that he is in control. And we know that his love is there and it takes away the fear. And the final part of Psalm 23 describes a feast, a party in the house of God. Tim Keller writes this. He's an American theologian and author. He says, God has a celebration meal with us, not after we're finally out of the dark valley, but in the middle of it, in the presence of our enemies. And whatever circumstance we face, temptation, fear, illness, physical issues, persecution, hardship, we have assurance under pressure. We have God's infinite resources in the worst of situations. How? Why? Well, it goes back to Jesus. On the night that Je- before Jesus died, over a meal, over a feast with his disciples, with his followers, Jesus made a new covenant, a new promise. He said that this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. And from that moment on, whoever puts their faith in Jesus and what he has done on the cross, the shedding of his blood in our place, now becomes guests at Jesus' table. And we're more than just acquaintances. We're family now. We're his sons and daughters. We've been invited to live with him forever. And this is the truth of Psalm 23, isn't it? Little band like to come up and get ready. So how do we respond to this this morning? Some of you, I think, just needed probably to be reminded of the truth of what Jesus has done and of God's care and God's love for us. Some of you maybe are currently walking through the valley of the shadow of death and need Jesus' reassurance and touch this morning. Well, some of you 
might know that actually God is singling you out. He's speaking to you because you know that you need to deal with some sin or disobedience. And you need to just come to Jesus and say, you know what, I, I need your help this morning. Some of you, maybe Jesus is asking you to do something for him. And it's a mix of excitement, but it's also scary as well. Maybe if you're really honest, some people in this room, as I've already mentioned, might know that actually some of these promises don't apply to you because you haven't yet put your faith in Jesus. And this morning you know that you want to put your faith in him. And what I'm describing here in Psalm 23 is not an exclusive club. It's not for the spiritual ones. It's not for the special ones. One of Jesus' followers, John, he wrote these famous words, For God so loved the world that whoever that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Note the words, whoever. This is not exclusive. If you want to turn to Jesus this morning, you can do that, and he will accept you. He will love you. He will forgive you. And as we grasp what Jesus has done for us, as described in David's prophecy in Psalm 22, and humbly come to Jesus and say, I surrender my life to you, we can truly walk in the hope and the love and the peace described in Psalm 23. And wherever you are this morning, whatever circumstance you find yourself in this morning, let's not miss this opportunity to come to Jesus. Let's come to him humbly and with a thankful heart. And we can truly lie down in green pastures because Jesus has laid his, down, his life down for us. We can truly find rest and refreshment from our sins because Jesus found rest after he bore our punishment for our sins. We can truly drink and eat in that feast with celebration, celebrate with God because Jesus bore our spiritual thirst. We can truly fear no evil or death because Jesus went there first and defeated it. We can truly dwell in the house of the Lord forever because Jesus ascended and is preparing a home for us. So let's pray. I'm going to pray and then we're going to worship and if anyone would like to respond to anything I've said or anything that has come through the worship this morning, please do. Please come and speak to Tommy, myself. There'll be a prayer team in the corner over there. Speak to your life group leader, someone that you trust. But let's not go away this morning without responding. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I just want to thank you for the victory that you have won on the cross. Thank you, Jesus, that you took our punishment, our shame, our sin, and you bore that for us. And Lord Jesus, you rose again, victorious over death, victorious over sin. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you reign in majesty. And as we come to you this morning, you love us, you accept us, you forgive us, you take condemnation from us, you help us in our troubles, you walk beside us in our fears, in our concerns. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you that not only that, but we also look forward to that day when we will be with you forever. We will celebrate with you. We look forward to that, Lord Jesus, and we praise you and exalt you today. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Amen.